I think recovering these seasons is a great idea for, for groups. I think inviting people, especially into Advent, inviting people in 2020, when there's so much confusion, so much anger, so much false hope being put on uh, any number of things that we can't put our hope in, let's, long, let's really long for a month for Christ's return. Let's look to it. Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. This podcast is designed for church leaders desiring to make disciples for Jesus Christ in the world. I'm your host, Oliver Hersey, and today we're again joined with Dr. Paul Guttaker, Executive Director for the Brazos Fellows at Christ Church in Waco, Texas. Paul is also a lecturer full-time in the History Department at Baylor University. In part two of this conversation with Paul, we're going to discuss how millennials feel about church today, how to create community in a socially distanced world, and what it looks like for the church to recover its memory in seasons like Advent and beyond. We hope you enjoy this. Tune in to the rest of this episode. This whole idea of thinking is, I think, sometimes a lot of people in, especially in America and I think Europe, Maybe it's different in different places in geography, but especially in the West, I think a lot of young people who have grown up thinking like they know everything are looking at the church saying they don't know how to think. They don't think critically. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that often from from young people, from from millennials, I guess you could say. The church doesn't think critically for itself, you know, and I want to turn the conversation to that topic, you know, in in the Gallup poll from 2018, it said this, Mm -hmm. quote, the percentage of millennials with no religion may be continuing to grow as an average of 33%. In Gallup surveys conducted in 2019 to date, they say they have no religious affiliation at all. And so there's this progression of more and more millennials being unanchored to any sort of religious affiliation. And I'm wondering how this connects to what we're talking about in terms of thinking, being people who can think well, and is there any hope for the church? And what should the church perhaps consider doing uh, in order to try to create space that could welcome back these young minds who are suspect of the church for various reasons and perhaps some of them good. Yeah, man, such a great question. When I read these things, I remember reading that report, I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, it's clear that the church is dwindling in North America. Globally, it's not the case, but but in North America, this is this is a reality. On the other hand, I always want to think, you know, it might be that it's it's now okay, or at least to a degree, it's more okay to not claim to be religious, to be Christian. And I would I just wonder how many of a previous generation it was still there was still social capital tied up in identifying that way. And if that's if that's to what extent that's part of the piece, then that's good, right? We that's need fine, right? we need honesty. We need. There may be costs to that. There may be social um, ramifications that aren't all positive from this, from the sort of decline of civic religion, you might say. But I, I, I tend to say, let civic religion die. Let faithful Christianity, true discipleship, let it seem more odd as opposed to a kind of nominal Christianity. But that said, there still is, there is still troubling aspects to, I think, the decline. I mean, I wonder, I wonder what you've seen in your own pastoral ministry, I I tend to see that we do a really good job in high school 
and sometimes in college. And then that it's that transition, I think, those transitory years where a lot of people get shuffled. And a lot of the kids I talk to, now they're not kids, they're students, they're young adults, but they dropped off somewhere in college. You know, they didn't go to church regularly. Maybe Christian college felt like going to church enough. But a lack of affiliation starts, I think, sometimes in those college years. But I'd be curious, I mean, what do you see, where do you see as the drop-off? Yeah, I do think there's a major drop-off from, you know, when students go away to college, there is only a very few remnant that will move back to the area. And even of those, there's a remnant that would come back to the the home church they grew up in. Uh, And then in terms of new people who trickle in and out, uh, that is it is interesting to see there, there is a little bit of a void for, uh, I would say, people in their, you know, mid-20s to their, to the, like, their early 40s. There's a pretty big void that I've noticed happening mm-hmm. in churches. Uh, that said, one of the things I do notice is that those who do return, the young people who are around, the, mill- the millennials who do come around, what they're looking for is authenticity. What they're looking for is, are you going to be real or are you going to be some polished version of a form of Christianity you inherited? Because what they're looking for is authenticity. What they're looking for are things you've already talked about, being vulnerable, being honest, being open. They're looking for connection. They're looking for something real. And, uh, and they, their tolerance for, for anything other than that is low. Whereas I wonder back in the day if people had just a higher tolerance for it because of what you said, civic religiosity is just appropriate to do. It's no longer appropriate. So people have freedom to say, you know what, I'm not going to tolerate that. And what I want is the real deal. And if I don't get the real deal, I'll go somewhere else. I see that happening. And then I see a whole different animal happening and it's consumerism. Yes. I don't like how that pastor preaches. I don't like how yeah. this church leads worship. I don't feel like it's alive here. And so I think that's dangerous too. I don't think we watched Jesus and the disciples walking around trying to uh, consume. I think I, we watched them really produce all yeah. the time, serve others. And if that's your concept of church consumption, then then that's a whole other animal and issue. So I see both of those things at work, and there's probably multiple other things that we're, we're grappling with, but it is challenging. It is. And, you know, these things are, these massive trends, these big picture trends are complicated. You know, there's no one problem. There's no one explanation. I resonate with what you just said a lot. And I think there's ways in which the gospel is good news that can be heard as good news in a new way for this young generation of 20, 30 somethings. And like one example of this, our lives are inundated with choice. We have to make decisions about everything we do. You know, we have to make decisions about which cereal on the cereal aisle to get, which college to go to, which job. And, and that's, I mean, to the extreme today, it's now you have to choose like, what's your identity? You know, even, yeah. even you're even asked to decide about, you know, your gender. And, and that is exhausting. That is a burden that we weren't meant to bear as creatures. Right. To have to, to have to will every little thing about our lives and who we are. And there's we actually, are. you know, there's something about the Christian gospel that says, you're not your own. Here's who you are. You belong to Christ that is actually, I think, profoundly freeing to people whose lives are anxious 
and burdened with this, you know, it's up to you to make, make who you are that, that the gospel in that moment is good news in a fresh way. And so I think there's ways in which we can understand and proclaim the gospel to young people who are increasingly anxious, increasingly say they're lonely, that they don't have good friendship and good community. The things, the needs that are felt needs are ones that the church historically has has actually offered us a medicine for, right? A salve for in the gospel and in the community of believers. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how the temptation, I think, always in life is to be our own God, right? To have our own control, our own, be able to make our own choices. And in a way, we've gone down this road of now we have all these choices that we do have opportunity to make. And it's exhausting. I love how you said that. And I think to myself, yeah, it is exhausting. It's exhausting to be God. We weren't. <laughs> Yeah. Meant to be God. Yeah. It's an exhausting role that none of us have been invited to partake in, but we've definitely been handed the opportunity to us by culture and, and the civilization we're, we're in. One of the things, you know, that I would love to hear, you know, we're in this current moment of a pandemic, right? And that obviously is also having a great impact on universities and churches all across at least America and I'm sure the world. You know, how has it impacted your fellows? Man, it has been confusing. <laughs> I mean, I know we're not alone in this. Every church has really hard questions to face. In some ways, it's been really hard because some of the things that we really value being part of the program have to change. So for example, we we try to do a lot more service in the community. We had fellows who would mentor in the elementary schools and and a lot of that stuff just can't happen in the same way this year. It's hard to do sort of ministry in, in traditional ways. And another thing is that the church has always showed quite a bit of literal hospitality, right? Families hosting us for our Monday dinner, you know. So like a, a, a few dozen different families would have the fellows over in a given year and, and share oh, wow. dinner with them. And that's just also not quite possible in the same way. But I'll say it's a great time to be a small community because... We can find ways to meet that are safe. We can occasionally take advantage of some free testing and, and really be close. And, you know, we're not a, a group size that can ever sort of, yeah, we can, we can kind of keep proceeding in a lot of ways. We're doing something that's pretty pandemic friendly, actually. And occasionally we have to meet on Zoom if there's, you know, some concern about exposure or if there's a guest instructor who's, is taking precautions. So it yeah. does change it some, but I feel like we're at the point now where every church and every Christian has to find a way to have a core community that you're still sharing life with and find a way to make that safe for you and your family and their family. Otherwise, I mean, we, you know, it's spiritually and emotionally, I think, dangerous, right? Talk more about that. What you just said yeah. is really important. You know, why is it so important and what what are the dangers that can happen if, I, if I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to wait this thing out. I'm not going to be connected. Yeah. Talk to me about yeah. And I mean, let me stress, there's some people that have to be super extreme, right? In fact, we have a family member who's at great risk and she has to be incredibly cautious, can only really meet with people outside. There's There's different circumstances, but I think there is... Uh, you know, where the metaphors that Paul uses in his epistles for what it means to be in Christ are corporate metaphors. We are a body. And you don't have to think very hard about the metaphor to think about how unhealthy a part of the body gets if it's on its own, right? If you see a finger line on the sidewalk, you don't think there's a finger. 
you call the police. <laughs> Something <laughs> terrible has happened. And so the ways in which we're a body together have to change some in COVID. That's clear. But, but we, uh, our life together and our life with Christ are in a real way inseparable. And, and there's all sorts of particulars to that in scripture, right? How, we just read this morning from the book of James. You know, if you're sick, what do you do? You turn to the community and ask for prayer. If you're unwell spiritually because of sin, confess and you'll be healed. Like it, it's just, it is life together in Christ where the body, he's the head. And so this is no prescription for exactly how to do this for every person in every community, but we've got to find ways to not be alone. And that's going to require physical proximity in some way because we're embodied creatures. So I know a lot of friends who sort of made a commitment to one or two other families or friends who are, they're, you know, they're being very cautious, but they're sharing life together and they're sort of isolated in that way. Um, maybe that's the solution for some or, or maybe it's different for others, but I think it does matter. I think physicality matters. I don't know when we'll get back to normal or what normal means, but in some ways, this is an opportunity for the church to recover that the church has always been not about what goes on in the building exclusively, yeah, but about how believers share life together. And maybe clearing all the programming out of the way is the best thing that can happen for recovering the sense in which the primary unit of the church is the household and to cultivate communities and family life with other families, with singles, with, with um, everyone, you know, every different kind of believer in the church. That That's maybe a good thing that can come from this. I am in full agreement with you on that. I really do think this has given us all an opportunity to pause and to take some very serious inventory about what's going on in our ministries, in the health of our ministries, and um, the health of ourselves as well in this whole process. So I think you're spot on with that. You know, you've, you've mentioned now the core unit being the family uh, and and these rhythms, I am actually curious, like your fellows read James this morning. Are you guys doing that on Zoom? Are you guys getting together physically every day for that morning prayer and evening prayer? Yeah, this has shifted a little. We do, there's a there's a group at church that gets together every morning. And we also host it one morning a week in our house. It used to be that we hosted more in our house, but we have to be a little cautious with that and limit it a little bit more. But yeah, we do. We get together physically every morning and we distance and we, you know, masks and we do it safely, but it's a discipline, you know, How it's, long? it's about a half hour to do morning prayer, seven thirty to eight. And it's just been such a gift. I mean, one of the gifts of praying morning prayer is my prayer life is, I'm not a very good Christian. You know, my prayer life is like the three or four things that are most worrying to me. And they're all petitions, you know, and they're generally about me. And when you're ushered into any kind of any kind of well-tested prayer, whether it's the BCP or some other thing, and you know, praying the Psalms, inevitably it it's just it unfolds so much more. There's adoration, there's thanksgiving, there's confession. And so whether or not I feel like it, I'm praying for things that I ought to pray for, that I ought to care about. And it over time, I start to, you know, I start to, to care about them. And there's space for our requests. So we get, you know, we get to hear about someone's mom who's having really scary cancer treatments or something, and we get to pray for healing. It's a way of being, I mean, the point of common prayer is that it is common. It is us together. And 
it's hard to overstate how important this is. I mean, I think, I think this is something that we kind of know, but praying together is maybe the most important thing we could do. You're challenging, I think everybody who's listening, you're challenging me as I'm, as I'm sitting here talking with you to really take a serious and hard look at, at this very integral part of how God has created us to be, to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with him with others. And the fact that you do this every day with your community is remarkable and refreshing to hear and exciting. You know, I'm, I'm going to leave here. I remember doing the Book of Common Prayer myself for a season with some people, and we've gotten away from that. And so I, I'm challenged right now to return to that and to return to some form of that discipline. Like you said, my prayer life Life can be like that too sometimes, mm-hmm. very narcissistically focused on me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not the way God created us. I'm wondering if you have any ideas, Paul, for you know small groups, small group leaders, pastors who are listening, maybe from a rural church, or I don't know, in terms of celebrating the seasons or the special times of years, the things you want to mark throughout the year in this unique situation of COVID, like how will you do that with your Brazos fellows as we kind of draw near to, you know, some of the special moments of the fall and and leading up to the Advent season? Yeah. Oh, great question. This is another thing that's so beautiful about the gospel, which is it, it reorients how we actually live in time, right? This is the point of the Christian calendar. And I love that there's been a sort of renewal of this, of of even denominations and traditions that haven't always had a sort of liturgical seasons or whatever. But, you know, the season of Advent is, I I was actually talking to my son about this this morning. I said, it's October and that means November's next. And he's three and he's trying to figure out what that all means. And, and then I said, December comes and my birthday's in December and then Advent. And then he goes, and then Christmas, you know, and there's something about that childlike joy. That's exactly the point, right? That Advent it's when we long for Christ to come, his first coming at Christmas, but also look forward to his second coming. And I think this is another way in which we can say, we have everything that's part of our culture, that's part of the world. And we can, you know, I like watching football. We can get excited about football season or whatever, but the story we're in, we're going to rehearse it every year. We're going to go back through this story of the gospel. And we're going to really focus on, you know, repentance in this season and joyful celebration this season. That to me, I think is really attractive actually to a lot of younger folks. They want, they want something that's rich. They want something that's old and time tested. And so what we'll do is, yeah, we'll, we'll embrace it. It'll shape our prayers. It'll shape our meals together. You know, we'll have some great feasting when we get to the, the feasts. Yes. We'll have some fasting, right? So these are not other ways of being embodied creatures in time and looking to sort of bring all of that into our, our life of worship. So, yeah, I, I think recovering these seasons is a great idea for, for groups. I think inviting people, especially into Advent, inviting people in 2020 when there's so much confusion, so much anger, so much false hope being put on uh, any number of things that we can't put our hope in yeah. to say, let's long, let's really long for a month for Christ's return. Let's look to it. And, you know, here's a, here's a little pitch. Like I think, It's very countercultural, but to not start celebrating Christmas during the season of longing is a hard thing to do. And it is, it's a good idea. (laughs) I always become a little bit of a pro-Advent, you know, keep Christmas in Christmas kind of person. Yeah. Um, We try to, you know, we do start, you can't help but start to feel Christmassy when December rolls around, but we do try to withhold some of that 
It's hard when Costco has their Christmas tree. Oh, man. (laughs) But we're a culture of instant gratification, and the church, unfortunately, is often about instant gratification spiritually. You know, I want Jesus to solve it now. And the people of God are told to wait and to be patient. And there's, anyway, there's 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 a spiritually beneficial practice to withholding and living in that longing. And so I think it's a great gift to to people to invite them into that. Yeah. So I just think about the small group leaders that I work with here at our church, Mm -hmm. Calvary. And I think about small group leaders, anybody who's listening to this, you know, even if your church doesn't necessarily give you a small group curriculum during Advent to use, um, or if they do, either way, you have to find ways to create space for the longing to happen for the for the joy to slowly build and uh and to get together and to begin the feasting a little bit but know that the great grand feast will come when the birth happens and the the christmas morning is there it's a wonderful wonderful experience paul i want to end our time paul i always love to ask our guests on the show because i love to learn from whoever we're talking to and in this case it's you and i'd love to learn some of the people in your life who have been inspirations to you they have given you perhaps ideas or guidance uh, spiritual direction when it comes to making disciples, who, who are some of the influencers that you have drawn from? One of the people that first comes to mind is a mentor from my graduate studies at Regent College, a professor named Sarah Williams. And she's a historian. And she's really why I love history and why I teach. Because Sarah, her goal as a teacher is to help the church recover its memory so that it can be on mission, so that we know how to be the church today. And so, and just a masterful storyteller, you know, so many students who hated history and then took a Sarah Williams class and they, you know, couldn't get enough of it. But also a teacher who was deeply interested in what the spirit is doing in her students and just attended to students in a way that wasn't, she didn't have it figured out before she got to the classroom, you know, she, she really tried to discern where they were and what, what they needed and what God was doing. That's a model for teaching and scholarship that I love. And another mentor, uh, also from Regent actually, Bruce Hindmarsh, a historian, but he really challenged me to think of study and the life of the mind as worship. He said, you know, he said, when you have intellectual doubts or hard questions, they can become prayers. You can pray them. You can ask them of God. And so an invitation to not think of, like, I do this work of study, and then I find a way to connect it to my faith, but it actually can be offered to the Lord. And he would, have, he would do this by lighting a candle on his desk when he went to work or to write as a, as a reminder, a very tangible physical reminder of, I do this in the presence of the Lord, and I can do it for the Lord. And, and even, even my questions and my struggles and my doubts can be prayer. Uh, th- those two, I, could, I can name many more, so many more wonderful teachers and mentors, but they have really shaped how I try to pursue my own study, my own teaching as worship, as an actually expression of, of love to the Lord. Well, Paul, it, uh, it blesses me to know that there are 
people like yourself out there in institutions and universities teaching students, not just because you love what you're teaching, but because you're seeking to also serve the whole person in the discipleship process of helping people get connected to the double components of God and themselves. And I'm so glad I had a chance to meet you today and have this conversation with you. You know, after hearing and learning about the Brazos fellows, I may, I mean, who knows, I may apply uh, <laughs> for the next season. It sounds like such a beautiful opportunity and community to take part in. But maybe there really is a listener out there uh, who's looking for something new and maybe this is something that they would want to sign up for. So I'd encourage you to Google Brazos Fellows and see if you can find it at Christ Church in Waco. And I think you would be blessed by it. And so, Paul, I pray that your ministry will continue to impact many lives and uh, that you'll continue to be involved in this lifelong process of making disciples to the very end. Thanks Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Oliver. Really appreciate it. This episode of the Transforming Discipleship Podcast was brought to you by smallgroups.com. It's a ministry of Christianity today, and I'm your host, Oliver Hersey. I'm a pastor in the Chicago area, and we want to thank all the ministry leaders out there who've tuned into this episode. If you are finding this podcast helpful for your ministry, we want you to do three things, if you wouldn't mind. First, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Second, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We always love getting good ratings. And then finally, you can subscribe to smallgroups.com today. This podcast is also now available on Amazon Podcasts, and you can even get it on your Amazon Alexa device and other podcast platforms. If you want full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe today. We have all sorts of plans to meet your budget, and this will give you access to hundreds and hundreds of Bible studies and tools aimed to train you and your small group leaders and so much more. So until next time, my friends, God bless.